warm welcome, everyone, to the Alapia Foundation's new podcast series, where experts share their insights on current and urgent energy matters for the benefit of the Foundation's members and the general community. The theme of this series is transitions or back to business as usual. My name is Axel Threlfall. I'm editor-at-large at Reuters, and I'm joined by Simon Henry, director of Carbon Market Development at the International Emissions Trading Association. Simon leads uh, AITA's work to advance the private sector's engagement in natural climate solutions and the reduction of emissions from deforestation and degradation. Uh, can I remind all listeners to please visit the foundation's website at www.abhafoundation.org for the latest reports. You can also follow the foundation on Twitter at Alatia uh, FNDN. Uh, before we start, let me offer a, a very uh, small bit of context. Many world leaders, captains of industry, civil society organizations see the Paris Agreement as the last hope for humanity to address the catastrophic impact of climate change and preserve the foundations for a healthy planet. But the current level of commitment by all signatories to the agreement uh, is insufficient to meet its goal of keeping global temperature increases to below two degrees. Um, the massive scale of decarbonization uh, that is needed will require, among other things, putting a global price on carbon. So today, I'm delighted to welcome Simon to share his insights on how carbon market instruments can contribute to achieving the daunting task of a 50% reduction in global carbon emissions by 2030 and on reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Simon will also share his views on the prospect of the rule book for Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. That's the rules on international carbon markets. I think uh, I'm right in saying one of the most complex concepts uh, of this accord. Uh, and But uh, Simon will share his views on those being finalized and agreed at COP26 in, in Glasgow. Good, good afternoon to you, Simon. Welcome to this uh, podcast. Um, Given, let's start big picture. Given the daunting task of decarbonizing this, uh, the global economy and the energy system, how in general do you feel countries are doing towards achieving the goals of Paris? What, what, what's, what's your scorecard, very quickly, if you like? Well, that's uh, yeah, thanks, Axel, and it's great to be with you. And that's a, it's a very good question to start with. Um, in, in terms of a score, I would say, yeah, somewhere, somewhere maybe five out of 10, sort of mid range, I suppose, something like that. I think there's a couple of things we need to keep in mind for the background context when we start talking about uh, ambition and the Paris Agreement. Um, first of which is that the actual mechanism within the Paris Agreement to deliver emission reductions, the nationally determined contributions, NDCs, they only came into force in January of this year. So we're only really five weeks into the Paris Agreement, although it was signed back in 2015. It's really only come into force in the last few weeks. And this is a, you know, a multi-decade agreement that will hopefully be in existence for, for many, many years to come. So we're really just at the start of the Paris Agreement journey. I think the other thing we need to bear in mind is that just one year after the Paris Agreement was signed, we had Donald Trump come to power in the US on the back of a, a manifesto, which included taking the US out of the Paris Agreement, and, and that occurred. Um, we also had the risk of countries like Brazil pulling out, um, you know, the potential for the US, uh, their withdrawal from the Paris Agreement could have triggered 
uh, a uh, sort of a domino effect of other big emitters pulling out of the agreement. That didn't happen. The US has now re-entered the agreement with the Biden administration. And actually, the agreement is a lot stronger than, than it could have been at this point in time. I think the other point that is um, provides a lot of optimism for the future is what we've seen in the last 12, 18 months with countries coming forward with net zero targets, ambitions for mid-century or 2060. And these aren't from small countries. These are some of the biggest emitters on the yep. planet. So China, obviously, with their commitment to reach net zero by 2060, which was announced at the UN General Assembly, the biggest which, sort which, of... Which, of course, sorry to interrupt, which, of course, Simon, the US has said actually isn't ambitious enough, right? And John Kerry's trying to get... Uh trying to get them to, to, to shift it a bit, I, I understand. Uh, well, exactly. Yes. And and the wording of the China announcement was 2060 at the latest. So there is scope to, to bring that forward. But along with China, we also saw similar announcements from countries like Japan, South Africa, South Korea, Canada. The EU is weeks away from putting net zero into law, not just a, an ambition or an objective, but actually codifying it into law. And of course, the US under the Biden administration have now... Um, spoken about net zero by 2050 and a decarbonized power system by 2035. So that is, you know, when you talk about these huge emitters actually ending their contribution to global warming, um, that's cause for a lot of optimism, I think. But the big challenge is actually not focusing on the 2050 or 2060, but, you know, what happens in the next five years, what happens in the right. next 10 years? And that's where the ambition is probably lacking at the moment is really putting in place policies and mechanisms to deliver emissions reductions now. Well, well let, let's let's talk, let's delve a little deeper. Um, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, I mentioned that, and I said one of the most complex concepts of, um, of, of this accord. Um, we, we hear a lot about the potential of well-designed carbon prices. Um, but but countries are clearly finding it difficult to agree uh, on the rules, to finalise the rules, to operationalise carbon markets, if you like. How how optimistic are you that we'll see progress uh, in Glasgow in November? Moderately optimistic. I mean, you're right that Article 6 is probably the most technically complicated element of the Paris Agreement. It's the piece of the Paris Agreement that needs the most... Um, uh, set of rule, you know, the most uh, uh, clarification around how it will operationalize. Um, uh, so in some respects, it's not surprising that we that we have reached a bit of a stalemate. I think the UK is very well placed to deliver an outcome in Glasgow in November. I mean, firstly, the UK has been a long supporter of international carbon markets. Um, so it's in their interest to, to reach agreement. I think it would be a, a great measure of success of their presidency if they can get this over the line and I think another I think actually the pandemic in some ways has helped because it's delayed things by a year usually delay in climate action is not a, a positive outcome but in this case it, I think it will have given countries time to reflect on their position uh, think about where compromise could be reached and and it's also given the UK time to do the behind the scenes diplomacy one of the one of the, the great things about the Paris Agreement and, and France's presidency of the COP that led to the agreement in 2015 was they did a huge amount of diplomacy in the lead up to the conference itself. So that when parties and countries came to Paris in 2015, 
the amount of work that needed to get the agreement over the line was not insurmountable. Um, the UK has now had an extended period to do that. And just recently, we've seen the confirmation of Alok Sharma as the COP president. He stepped down from his ministerial role within the UK government to focus purely on the COP. Um, the UK has a very good uh, diplomatic core around the world. Um, climate envoys in embassies, working with countries, thinking about how problems can, can be overcome. So I think I think the work is going on that should, and we hope, lead to a successful outcome in Glasgow. Okay, you know, actually just taking a step back, I, I just want to hear your views on carbon markets in, in, in general, what you think the, the benefits are, because clearly um, there are big risks if, if, if these are designed poorly, if the rules are too lax, they could be used as loopholes. And I, I think that's what a lot of environmental groups are worried about. Just give us your overall uh, feeling uh, on, on the benefits of carbon, market, uh, carbon markets and what you think the big risks are. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big question because we use that term carbon markets, but actually there's many, many components to carbon markets. So uh, the, the sort of the classic example of a carbon market is an emissions trading system like we have in the EU. And how that works is it puts a cap on emissions across a continent or an economy or a country. Um, that cap is turned into a carbon budget so that it's made up of individual tons of carbon that are created in, in, in allowances and permits. And whenever a factory, an installation emits a ton of carbon, it has to submit uh, one of these allowances, one of these permits at the end of the year, which then gets retired. So over time, that budget declines because the cap is declining and heading towards a target, say the 2030 target. Um, and the, the penalties for non-compliance in the EU, for an example, if you don't comply, you, you get hit with a fine of about 110 euros per tonne and you still have to submit a permit next year. So we see compliance levels in, in the EU around 99.5%. It's very few installations that don't actually comply because the, the penalties for failure to comply are very strong. So that's one of the best out, you know, the best um characteristics of a of an emissions trading system is that it it, it almost guarantees you the out the delivery of your environmental outcome your emissions reductions that you want to achieve by uh, a target date in the future um, and because participants within that market they they can buy and they can trade these permits it should also deliver you the, the lowest cost of carbon to reach your target those companies who can reduce emissions for less than the cost of a permit will do so. Those who can't, they will buy permits and then you, you, you see the market organize itself uh, and the price it should deliver should be, should be the lowest cost form of, of emissions reduction. So, and of course, when we talk about climate ambition, the main barrier to raising ambition is the cost of doing that. So if we can be really efficient in the way we reduce emissions and we can reduce the costs, it, it implies we can achieve more. And that, of course, is exactly what we need to do when it comes to, to to reducing emissions. So I think emissions trading systems are, you know, very effective in that in that sense. Yeah, I think one of the other big aspects of of carbon markets is the role of carbon credits. And there's a difference here between allowances or permits, as as I refer to them, which is what we have in the EU, and then carbon credits. So those are units that are generated for reducing emissions through a project somewhere else, for instance, planting trees or investing mm. in renewables. 
not all carbon markets allow the use of credits. So the EU, the biggest market, doesn't allow the use of credits. It's just allowances. So in terms of environmental integrity, those questions go away in places like the EU, I think. Um, so that's, an, that's a whole other topic. And you know, there's a huge amount of work going on and the environmental integrity of carbon credits is a, is a, big, is a big topic and um, the focus of a lot of research over the last 10 years. Um, but that's also a very powerful tool, and, and I think we'll probably come on to that in in some uh, further further on into this podcast. Um, let let me ask you just yeah before we do, and I'd quite I'd like to come on to that quite quite quickly the the credit side. But are you heartened by the private sector's um, role in all of this and response? Uh, in all of this, um, this idea of putting a price on carbon, because it seems the private sector is pretty, pretty on board, generally speaking, right? Yeah, and that's exactly why AITA exists. We, we've, we're, the, we're made up of private sector members to advocate for greater use of, of carbon markets as a policy tool. Um, generally, the private sector prefer the use of carbon markets over other options, such as a tax. Um, it's more flexible and, and fits really better with their business operations because companies operate in carbon, well, they operate in markets. So a carbon market is just another op, uh, a market for them to, to operate in. Um, so so that, that is, there's a lot of support from the private sector in terms of compliance carbon markets. But the other area where we've seen this huge private sector interest is in the voluntary markets. And when I say voluntary markets, I'm, I'm talking about companies who are voluntarily buying carbon credits to offset their emissions as part of a, a net zero commitment or climate neutral commitment. Um, and we've seen the voluntary market, we've seen supply of credits into that voluntary market quadruple since about 2016. Um, and the supply is there because the demand is coming from very big companies who are buying, buying credits in much bigger volume. And then Looking to the future, we've we've just concluded a phase um, of a task force led by Mark Carney called the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Markets, which has um, got together a huge number of companies to identify challenges in the voluntary market and work out how it can be scaled. And that task force is is looking at scaling the market by a factor of 15 over the next 10 years or so. Um, so although we've seen the market quadruple in size, the outlook is is much bigger in terms of, of of growing it further. So I think the prospects there look look very strong. Okay, um, just back back onto the a word on credit specifically. What what worries you about that scheme? Um, I, I mention loopholes. I mean, is there a is there a a, a worry that that the system could be abused? Uh, I mean that that risk is there. Um, and we have seen that in the past, but I think that's like all markets. All, mar all markets face the risk of fraud or um, malpractice, um, and we have rules in place to try to prevent that, to penalise actors who um, do engage in malpractice. Um, and some of this is is around the science of how you do a carbon crediting program, how you measure the emissions reductions, how you transact those emissions reductions. And this market has been assessing these challenges for probably the last 20 years. So we've seen a huge amount of progress, I think, in this area. Um, 
I think sometimes there's a perception that the challenges we had, say, back in 2008, 2009, when there was a lot of criticism in the voluntary market, that, that there's been no progress over the last decade, when in fact, things have really matured, the, the business practices of the voluntary market have matured. Um, some of the, the technology that we have, for instance, the use of remote sensing to monitor large areas of land and assess deforestation, measure increase in carbon stocks through reforestation. All these technologies have, have really developed over the last 10 years. So the, the robustness of the whole process, both the, both the business and the science and the technology have massively increased and, and will continue to do so, especially as we see new participants coming into the market. They'll bring their own uh, new innovations that will help to strengthen the market, I believe. Yeah. Um, look, I've got a, a wary eye on the time, but just, I, I've got a, a, a couple of other bits and pieces. The, the Markets for Natural Climate Solutions, this AITA uh, initiative, uh, scaling up the role of nature-based credits in, in carbon markets. Um, tell us a little bit about that, um, wh where you see that going, how well that's progressing. Yeah, so this came about from conversations with some of our members who were looking to make really sizable investments into what we call natural climate solutions, nature-based solutions. And carbon markets are the obvious vehicle for those investments. Um, it's about linking, uh, placing a value on, on nature because of the, the carbon saving potential that it can provide. But the carbon markets that we have around the world today, they have a limited role for crediting from nature. Often the markets are fragmented, they're small, complicated. So they're not really conducive for the deployment of capital on the on the scale that we would like to see, which is into the hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, so we launched this initiative to try to tackle some of these problems, try to scale up the role of nature in carbon markets, try to uh, harmonize arrangements so that markets um, could be linked in the future to, again, increase that, that pool of supply and demand, standardize markets, because again, the approaches in different markets can be very different. But also, this is not just a private sector um, initiative, because I think the, the challenges companies are facing in this sector are also mirrored by challenges countries are facing. Many countries want to use their natural resources to help deliver their NDCs, scale up their NDCs, yeah. especially yeah. countries with big tropical forests or big peatlands, agricultural uh, resources. So we're working with a number of governments around the world to try and um, tackle some of these challenges and and scale up uh, the role of nature in their own carbon markets. And these are both domestic carbon markets. So as an instance, uh, an, an example, we're, we're working in Colombia, who are uh, developing a, an emissions trading system and uh, natural climate solutions will play a role in that. So we're trying to help the Colombian government and build a coalition private sector when when, when if, sorry to interrupt I mean, if, if if governments ask you you know that that key question what why in your view is putting a price on carbon a more effective way of reducing emissions than policy mandates for example in some sectors what do you tell them well it, i think a carbon market and a price on carbon has a number of benefits to them firstly if you put a price on carbon it trickles down through the economy so that that influences Business, deci business decisions, it influences investor decisions and consumer behavior. And it, and it all leads towards lower carbon outcomes. 
The other big benefit of carbon markets from a government point of view is that they can raise huge sums of revenue um, for governments, which in turn can then be recycled into low carbon research and innovation, uh, subsidies for low carbon technologies. Just just yesterday, in fact, in the in the EU, where we have regular carbon auctions, the Polish government held an auction that raised just under uh, 100 million euros for mm. the Polish mm. treasury. And those auctions take place every two weeks for Poland. So that raises, you know, over the course of a year, billions of euros, which in turn can then fund a Polish low carbon uh, program. Yeah, yeah. Um, f- final question, Simon. In, in, you know, in the scheme of things, the big picture, when we talk about decarbonizing the world economy uh, and the investment that, 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 that is required to do that, how big a role will what we've talked about today, carbon markets, carbon pricing, these schemes play in moving this whole process forward? I mean, what, what, how big a piece of this do you see your, your segment being? I think a, a very considerable piece of the segment. Um, I think if you speak to any economist, they often say the first task you need to do when decarbonizing is put a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. Markets are a, are a very good way of doing that, though there are other options. But if we look at around the world where markets are coming online, China just officially on the 1st of February, just four days ago now, launched their national carbon market. We don't expect trading to start probably until the middle of the year. But that that will now become the biggest market in the world by a long way. Uh, we see other big emitters introducing markets like Indonesia. Mexico has a pilot market. Uh, Colombia, as I mentioned, is moving towards a market. So some of the biggest emitters in the world are looking at carbon markets. Um, but, they, but some of the biggest emitters in the world, the China, India, Brazil, they are also the ones dragging their heels on Article 6, right, ahead of uh, COP26. Uh, some of them are, but there's also a, an important um, distinction here to be made that Article 6 is all about the international transfer of emissions reductions and how if you do an emission reduction in one country, you transfer it to another and it and it helps deliver that other country's NDC. That, that doesn't interact with domestic or national carbon markets. Right. So even if we see no outcome on Article 6, that's not a barrier to countries setting up their own national system. And we've had the EU ETS for the last 15 years. And obviously, Article 6 has only come about since Paris was signed. So there's an important distinction to be made there. All right. Look, Simon, uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time. But I wanted to, this is a, a complex space, and we could go on for hours. Um, but uh, I want to thank you, Simon, for your insights uh, and, and your uh, time today. Um, it's a fascinating area, clearly a potent tool that can draw on the ingenuity uh, uh, in the private sector to fight climate change. Um, do watch this space for the next Alatia podcast uh, in the series. Uh, plenty coming up. I'm Axel Threlfall. Many thanks and goodbye.